Well, our sermon passage this morning is, as we've already been said, Psalm 91. So if you have a Bible there with you here or at home, if you want to turn to Psalm 91, that'll be our text. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word out of respect for the Word of God. Give ear to God's Word, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings. You will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, You will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, as we read earlier in the service, Uh, What does Deuteronomy say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask him to teach us his word today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, as always, that you've given it to us as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. That in it we find uh, revealed by you the way of salvation through faith in Christ. And in it you give us all these precious promises of of your care and, and guidance and protection in time of trouble, and so we ask this morning that you would uh, work in us by your Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your Word, and we ask, as always, that you would work in us by your Spirit also, that we might be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, obviously we're living in a rather rather unsettling time uh, for most of us, uh, those of us Uh, who are not old enough to remember what life was like during the Great Depression some hundred years ago and World War II may find ourselves kind of ill at ease about the current pandemic itself or the effects of it on our economy, our way of life, and our society in general. The very fact that we have to meet this way sort of uh, online, it can be a little unsettling, but thankfully we're in a time where we can do that. Um, one of the great things about this, the book of Psalms, one of the reasons we, we preach it, we read it, we pray it, we sing it, uh, this great songbook of Israel and the church, uh, it, pr- it provides us with songs uh, that we can sing and worship to our God no matter what happens to be going on in our lives. Whatever we're experiencing, there's, there's a psalm or psalms that, that, that's for that and cover that. The psalms what they do is they equip us for worshiping God, even in times of trouble and affliction. I have to say that that, that probably cannot be said of most of the, uh, many of the modern trite praise courses that are so popular in, in our churches today. 
More than that, the Psalms, in equipping us for worship in times of affliction and hardship, because we, we're worshiping in those times of affliction and hardship, it actually equips us as the people of God for living life to the glory of God in those times of affliction and hardship. The, the Psalms equip us to worship, and because they equip us to worship, they also equip us to live in a way that's glorifying to God and edifying to us, even in times of hardship and affliction. And so I, I find it uh, hard to imagine a more fitting psalm for us to be looking at this morning than Psalm 91. Psalm 91 has given comfort and peace to believers in Christ throughout history, throughout the history of the church, even during times of literal plagues and pestilence. Sometimes uh, that's what the church goes through, and, and that will continue to be the case at times. And the psalmist mentions that actually in the psalm at least three times, pestilence and plague and God's promise of protection of his people even through those things. So, you know, it's not difficult to see why certain psalms, such as this one, have brought comfort to believers throughout history. Uh, this great psalm uh, redirects our eyes, redirects our vision from the, the present struggle that we have to have to be going through at the time, and redirects our gaze to God. The Most High God, as the psalmist calls him here, who is himself our sustainer and protector of all those who are in Christ by faith. There's an outline of sorts I can give you for the psalmist. We'll try to follow it. The psalm in the first couple verses, verses 1 and 2, begins with the promise of God's protection. And in that first opening two verses, the psalmist gives us the promise of God's protection. And he gives us his own testimony of faith in that promise and in the God who promises that protection. In the middle of the psalm, the bulk of the psalm in verses 3 through 13, the psalm details for us all of the many ways that the Lord God shelters his people in time of trouble, different kinds of trouble, many kinds of different afflictions and persecutions and troubles. And then at the very end, in the last three verses, verses 14 to 16, the psalm closes with God himself speaking to us making the promise of his protection spoken of back in verse 1 even more sure. So the first thing we see in our text this morning is the promise of protection and the psalmist's own testimony of faith and trust in God alone for that protection. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. That promise in verse 1, and really throughout the psalm, it's really an invitation to us as the reader to trust in God and to find our shelter in Him alone. It's a reminder that He's the only real shelter we have in this life. And the name or the title that's used of God here, I think, is significant. It's meant to remind us of the great power and majesty of our God. He calls it the Most High. The Almighty, the Most High God, His majesty and His power are beyond compare. There's there's nothing too big for our God. It's as Paul says in Romans 8.31, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul, if you know that text, Paul's not saying you won't have enemies. He certainly isn't saying that you won't have any problems. But what he's saying is, if God is on your side, if He is for you, What does all that matter? Nothing can touch you if God is for you. You will have enemies, but our enemies will be nothing before God. We'll have trouble and pestilence, but we'll have peace because we have God as our refuge. 
And so the psalmist sets forth the theme of the whole psalm right here in verse 1 at the very beginning. He says, this is the theme of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The Most High and the Almighty. That's Verse 1, you could say, is a summary of everything else that comes after it in the psalm. Everything else in the psalm is meant to explain and teach to us that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide or live in the shadow of the Almighty. Everything in the rest of the psalm is an unfolding of that great gospel promise from our God. Then in verse 2, what does the psalmist do? He says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's giving us his testimony. It's as if he's sitting next to us six feet apart, and he's giving us his testimony saying, here's the promise of God, and I trust God as my fortress. He's giving us his testimony. He's testifying of his faith in the Lord. He doesn't let the promise in verse 1 stop at being just some general truism, but applies it and takes it to himself. He embraces the promise of God by faith. And brothers and sisters, is that... That's what you must do as well. You have to have the same testimony as that as the psalmist and not just say God's a savior, but he's my savior. Don't just affirm the truth of verse one. That's not enough. It's a start. But make it your own by faith the same way the psalmist does in verse two. Or, and so I asked this morning, are you dwelling in the shelter of the most high right now? Are you abiding In the shadow of the Almighty is God your refuge and hiding place. Even right now during this present trouble, you must say with the psalmist that God himself is your refuge, that he's your fortress, that he's your God in whom you trust. Can you say that this morning? Is God your refuge? Charles Spurgeon, the great great, uh, preacher and Calvinist, writes this. He says, To take up a general truth and make it your own by personal faith is the highest wisdom. It is but poor comfort to say the Lord is a refuge, but to say that he is my refuge is the essence of consolation. Don't just say that God is a refuge. Say he's your refuge. He's my refuge and my God. I hope that you can say that this morning. I hope that you can say today That the Lord is not just the Lord, but he's your Lord and your God, your refuge through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only then that that promise of protection found throughout this great psalm belongs to you and you have a right to its title and will give you the peace and comfort that you need in this time of trouble. Well, the middle of the psalm, the verses 3 through 13, is an unfolding of that promise in verse 1. It's a picture. If you read through it, it's really a picture of God's providential Protection over all things in the life of a believer. What What is providence, you may ask? Maybe some of you don't know what that word is, have never heard of it or read it. It's a word that's kind of fallen out of use, unfortunately. But let's, uh, let's bring it back and make providence great again. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a good, concise, helpful definition. Shorter Catechism question 11 says, What are God's works of providence? Answer. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. God not only created all things from nothing in the very beginning, you read of that in Genesis 1, but he also preserves and sustains all things as well. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, Christ himself, it says, quote, 
upholds the universe by the word of his power. We would cease to exist, the entire universe as we know it, would cease to exist if Christ himself did not sustain all these things by his powerful word. More than that, not just sustaining and preserving, God, the Lord, governs or rules over all things as well, and not just all his creatures. What does it say at the end? And all their actions. All their actions as well. In other words, God's providence, his care for and his governing of all his creation is all-encompassing. A knowledge of that truth, the truth of God's providence, should, should bring great comfort to the life of every believer. Does God's providence comfort you in time of trouble? John Calvin writes this, he says, I would say that the greatest misery which can befall a man is to know nothing of God's providence. And conversely, that it is an exceptional blessing for him to know it well. If you don't have a knowledge of God's providence on your behalf, you will not have comfort in time of trial. You will think that you are subject to chance, to circumstance, but you're not because God is sustaining and governing all these things. Even a brief look at verses 313, 3, 3 through 13 rather, shows us the different ways that God preserves us as his people in time of trouble. Look at those verses. In verse 3 he says, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. God will deliver us, in other words, both from the plots of our enemies as well as from the pestilences that threaten us. He delivers us from evil people as well as from evil circumstance. It includes both. And look at the way the psalmist describes God as he protects the one who trusts in him. Look at verse 4. It says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find shelter. His faithfulness, or truth, is a shield and a buckler. Now, the psalmist does what we often do. He's mixing his metaphors. He, no, no one metaphor is, is suitable by itself, so he mixes them up. He, he says, God covers us under his wings like a mother hen. What a warm, comforting image that is the scripture uses. That's how God covers his people and protects us through the storms of life. The Lord Jesus Christ himself used the same imagery, didn't he? Look at Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. But God's providential protection is also likened to a military imagery, isn't it? God's faithfulness or truth, it says, is a shield and a buckler. When the deadly arrows are flying, some of those arrows can be literal. God is our shield. And it's because of that truth that we will not fear the arrow that flies by day, the psalmist says in verse 5. The psalmist continues that same battlefield imagery in verses 7 through 8 where it says this, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. What a picture. Think about it. It's as if you're bulletproof during the middle of a battle. People are falling left and right, but it won't come near you. And not only will you not fall, but what does he promise at the end? That you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. You'll see God's righteous judgment in all of it. We saw this throughout our book in the study of Revelation recently that One day in heaven, we will see that God has done all things well. 
One day, we won't see it now, we have to see it by faith. One day we will see that God will make all things right. And that he, we are truly in Christ more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now you might be thinking to yourself as you're listening to this, you might be saying, hold on pastor, it sounds like the psalmist is promising you won't have any problems in your life. That's not what he says at all. He mentions there's going to be pestilence. He mentions there's going to be arrows and and, and battle and enemies and things like that. You know, do Christians suffer in this life? That should not be a hard question to answer in the affirmative to. History, your own personal history as believers, the history of the church and things like that. Scripture teaches us differently, doesn't it? The scriptures tell us over and over again all the different trials that we face in life. We, we suffer troubles, we suffer illnesses, we suffer persecutions, and even pestilence. What does Romans 8.36 say? Paul says, for your sake, we are being what? Killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, I was thinking this morning, you know, if, if, if this psalm teaches that you'll never have a problem, everybody would be a Christian. Who wouldn't be a Christian if you could be promised never to have a hard day? It's as if Satan said to, to, to God about Job, does Job serve you for nothing? That's not the case. The psalmist is not ignorant of these things. He's not promising us sunshine and rainbows falsely. He's not saying that no trouble will ever befall you. But in verse 10 he says, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No evil. The great Puritan writer Thomas Watson says this, God doth not say no affliction shall befall us, but no evil. There's a difference. He doesn't say you won't have affliction. Jesus himself said in this life you'll have trouble. The Lord says in his psalmist in the psalm here, no evil, not no afflictions. Paul says in Romans 8.28 that God makes all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And all those things that he works together for your good, if you read Romans 8, there's a lot of bad things in there. Persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. He doesn't say those things won't come. He says that those things won't harm us. That God even makes those things work together for our good, even for our salvation. John Stott writes the following about this. He says, what they, that's God's children, what they know is that ultimately whatever their circumstances may be, they are secure in God's love. Psalm 91 is, in fact, he says, the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 31 to 39. That is a great summary of this psalm. This is the Old Testament version or equivalent of Romans chapter 8. What a great comparison. Read that chapter. This is your homework. You're at home. You can read. Uh, read, read Romans chapter 8, especially verses 31 through 39. And then go back and read Psalm 91. Both alike similarly teach that whatever happens to us in this life, our God is in control and he will turn it to make it turn out for our good. He says in Romans 8.39 that nothing in all of creation, nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not pestilence, not famine, not nakedness, not, not danger, not sword. And not only that, look at verses 11 through 12, where God also charges and commands his angels to protect us. In verses 11 to 12, the psalmist says, For he will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands 
They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You won't even stub your toe, is what he's saying. That is how complete God's protection is over you, even through his angels. You might know and might remember that Satan himself quoted these verses when he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, but he misapplied it. He twisted, as he always seems to do, he twisted God's word to try to tempt Christ to do something he shouldn't do. And what did Jesus our Lord do as an example for us also? He used the truth of God, as verse 4 calls it, as a shield and buckler. He used the truth of God, he said, again, it is written, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Matthew 4, verse 7. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16 there. He's saying, you're, you're, you're teaching this the wrong way. The Bible talks about protection, but it also says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. God's providence and his providential protection is not a pretext for carelessness. It's not a pretext for recklessness. We must not put the Lord our God to the test. We are to use wisdom and prudence and caution. But in all of those things, we are to trust God and not to fear. God's mighty angels guard us in all of our ways as we serve God and walk in his ways. When verse 13 promises that we will tread on the lion and the adder and that we will trample underfoot the young lion and the serpent, that is not an invitation to go snake handling. It is, it is a promise that God will protect us as we walk in his ways, as we serve him and do his will. And we will tread on the one who is often compared to a roaring lion and a serpent in scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, Genesis 3, verse 1, likens the evil one, Satan, to a serpent. Peter calls him a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. And what does Paul say to us in Romans sixteen twenty? He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we will, by the grace of God, trample the, the tread on the lion and the adder, ultimately in treading Satan under our feet by his grace. Well, the third thing that, that the psalmist does is, you know, the psalm begins with a promise of God's protection. He gives us his own testimony of faith in that promise in verses 1 to 2. In the last three verses of the psalm, verses 14 to 16, the speaker of the psalm changes dramatically. All of the word of God is just that, God's word. But here God speaks even more dramatically and, and more directly in verses 14 to 16. It's our God himself who speaks to us and gives testimony as to the sureness of his promise of protection. Look at verses 14 to 16. There God says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Look at how many times God says, God himself says, I will in those three verses. He says, he will deliver you. He will protect you. He will answer you when you call to him. He will be with you in your troubles. He will rescue you and honor you with long life and satisfy you and show you his salvation. And the point is, we need not fear. As Jesus says in Matthew 10.30, even the hairs of our head are numbered. How often has our God spared you from evil and you didn't even know it? 
How often have His angels borne you up uh, in their hands without you realizing and sparing you from all kinds of dangers and trials that we weren't even aware we were in danger of? How often were you in trial in your life has, has God shown you mercy and gotten you through all the different things, whether it be sickness or death or danger or all such things? How many times has our God had mercy upon you in time of trial? We probably can't even count the ways. If you were to write a diary of all these things, you'd have a hard time numbering all of them, even the ones that you know about. And what about the long life that's promised there in verse 16? That God promises there. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, wisely notes this. He says, They shall live long enough. They shall be continued in this world till they have done the work they were sent into this world for and are ready for heaven. And that is long enough. Who would wish to live a day longer than God has some work to do either by him or upon him? So fear not, dwell in the shelter of the Most High by faith in Jesus Christ, and remain at work for him as long as he has you in this life, where he's working in and through you by his spirit, until your work here is done, and you are all ready for heaven. If you're in Christ by faith, you are more secure than you can possibly imagine, because God's providential protection rests over you. So dwell and rest and take your refuge in him alone. Amen.